yeah, so as I said last week, books of the prophet are filled with all kinds of language that are maybe hard to understand, and a lot of times they come, they're, they're full of judgment, and so we just maybe avoid them a little bit, but we're going to do a whole series called Tension, uh, which is about serving a God of both judgment and grace, and so last week we talked about uh, the ju- that, how the judgment of God helps us see the world rightly and see ourselves rightly and see uh, Jesus fully, um, and so uh, this week, as we, as we get into just the, the rest of this passage in the book of Micah, is going to be kind of this, this rhythm of indictment and um, this calling out the people of God for their sin and then a point to hope. And there's these rhythms that keep repeating themselves. And so as we kind of set the stage for these next couple, or for last week and this week, and then we're going to get into some real, um, what the, the Lord is actually hoping to do, the, not hoping, what the Lord is going to do through his church um, is, is going to be kind of a surprising turn. Is we, we often want to sit back and look at the world and think, okay, if, if God could just get a hold of them, right? right? The people out there, the ones full of sin, the ones that are causing all this trouble, if the Lord just get a hold of them, then this whole world you know, thing would, would turn itself around. We'd have a better, better life, right? Less news stories that are um, full of terror and weeping and things like that. But what we're going to see out of this book is that God is actually looking at his people, and he's going to give his people, the church, the judgment, because he has, his plan for the broken world that he's judged as, as sinful and um, damned and doomed, his, his plan is actually his church uh, to redeem and to reconcile the world into himself. And, and so we're going to see that God has special instructions and hope and, and a plan for us. And really, I'm, I'm excited to even drill into what that looks like as we um, live that out, like to, to dream a bit of what it... Like, what would it look like if the people of God were actually living as the people of God? What effect would that have on Marion and Southern Illinois and, and really even to the ends of the earth? What, what effect would that have if the people of God were actually living as the people of God? But in order to get there, we need to understand a little bit more the context of what's going on in this judgment that is being cast by Micah the prophet. And, um, and to do that, we need to talk a little bit about idolatry. And so to get started, I just want you to stop and, and think about whatever came to your mind when I just said that word, right? When, when, I, when you hear the word idolatry, what do you see in your mind? What do you start thinking about? Is it uh, ancient, kind of unenlightened people that have carved some weird images and are doing some weird dances around these images, right? Is it, is it, is it that? Is it, is it the whole, like, you know, idol god of, of, made of, you know, gold or, or wood and these, maybe it's animal sacrifice and you're thinking about other cultures, right? You, you, when you think about idolatry, oftentimes you're thinking about these, these weird practices of slaughtering animals, slaughtering people even, um, and, and maybe bowing down before these, these things that are built up, Right? Um, and, and so sometimes we have a hard time relating to that. <clears throat> and these, you know, the, then because it seems so removed, and that's oftentimes what comes in our mind when we think about idolatry, then when we read the commands of God that we should, you know, have no other gods before him and, and that we should not make any graven in- images of God, like, we're like, okay, well, those are easy. Like, a lot of us just think, like, we, we run through the Ten Commandments, and we see those two, and we're like, okay, those are freebies. Like, it's good. Like, I, like we're not, we don't think we're tempted to make anything else God, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, when you hear that, you shall have no other gods before me, you're like, all right, cool. Like, most of us would never dream of, like, answering the question, like, who is God? Like, we would never, like, fill in the blank with something, right? Like, we would never, most of us are, are raised in a Christian subculture, right? And if that's you, and you're, you're here from 
somewhere else where, you know, there wasn't a church on every corner, then we're really glad you're here, but you should know the rest of us. That's just how we were raised. And, and so we just kind of had this understanding of, of, like, the God of the Bible is the God of the universe. And so most, most of us would never dream of, like, putting something else in that, that answer box of who is God. And so we just think, okay, well, I'm good on that one, right? And then, and then when it says don't make any graven images or carved images, we're like, that doesn't interest me at all, right? Like, that's not my decor style. I don't want little weird, you know, carved images of gods in my house or like, so I'm just not, I'm not tempted there, right? So we just kind of check those off and think, okay, well, I'm good. I'm going to move on. And then because of like that disconnect, then stories in the Bible, we have a hard time relating to them. We have a hard time understanding what was going on and we can be really judgmental of them as well, right? Uh, You ever think of the story of the golden, the people in the golden calf in Exodus, Right, So Moses is up on the mountain. The people are encamped around Mount, Mount Sinai. God has done all of this incredible work for them. Right, You really got to read the rest of the story to, to kind of build up to that. But God has rescued them out of this uh, land that, where they were, slaved, or they were enslaved to this you know, Pharaoh, and, and it was a terrible place. And, and God heard their cry, rescued them through incredible work. You should read Exodus if you hadn't. And, and you see all that God has done to get them out through the plagues and then through... Uh, getting them out of the predicament of the Red Sea, right? All of that has happened before this. And then God brings them into the wilderness. He says, okay, now we're going we're gonna to sit down and talk about what this relationships look like, right? I've brought you out of the land of Egypt for a reason. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to bless you. And, and you're going to be, and through this blessing of you, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, right? And, and so God has done all this work. And then they're encamped around Mount Sinai where, where God is meeting with them and is going to make this covenant with them Right? And so they've seen all of this incredible work. They're seeing the cloud and the thunder as Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. They're, they're witnessing all of this. But Moses is up there too long, right, so to speak, and the people start getting anxious. And we find this bizarre story that right on the tail of all of those things that God had done so clearly, so undeniably, right? How many of you guys have ever found yourself saying, man, if I could just see God do something to prove that he's real, right? Like if he would just do something like like, if I could see him part the Red Sea, like, I'm in, right? Like, no more doubts. I'll sign my life over. I, I'm in. If I could see him heal somebody, if I could see him bring somebody back from the dead, fill in the blank, if I could see that, then I'm in, right? How many of you thought something like that before? But what we see is our hearts are so fickle and so eager to latch on to something else that what we have is these people that have been rescued by this incredible God. While they're there meeting with him on this mountain, Moses comes back down, and what does he find? He finds the people have, have put all of their jewelry in a fire and have cranked out a calf of gold. Listen, you might have heard that story so much that it's really familiar, but it's weird, right? Like, why did they do that? Why a calf? Why a golden calf? I'm not impressed by a calf, Right? I'm a cattle, I grew up on a cattle farm. Calves are cute, but they're not impressive. I don't, I don't worship them. Nothing in me goes, oh, man, like, like, no, just, okay, that's a cute little calf. Take a picture, you know, ooh and all. But no, like, so what is going on there? And so because, and we just can't connect, and we just go, man, how, how ignorant are those people? How stupid were they that, they that they've got this God that is living and active and has done all this work in their life, and then they're up on it, and then they're down here making this little calf of gold? Like that's, that's weird, right? And so we, we have this disconnect. And so we think, well, that's idolatry. Well, I'm not going to do that. Like, again, not 
really into golden calves as part of my home decor and don't really want that in my church. So like, we're good. Let's move on to something more applicable. But what, when we start to see, we look into a little bit more of the context and we understand that, that the culture that they came out of in Egypt, um, where there was a, a multitude of gods, and, and, and one of them was, was named Apis, and, and there was this god of like, fertility and, and prosperity and, and power and money. And then the same thing in, in the, the Canaanite land where they are now, like there's a, a God named Baal, which is just these multiple gods of, of power and money and sex. And so what, what you have is actually these people that they're a lot more like us than we realize because what you have is these people that are uh, down at the base of the mountain and they're disappointed with their God. They're disappointed with what he's turned out to be. They're disappointed and they're confused. They don't know exactly what he's doing, right? They can't, they can't see him. They can't take hold of him and they can't control him, right? And, and so they start to get nervous. And, and because of they're disappointed with, with what God is in their life, they take things in their own hands and they turn to what? Power and sex and money. And they create this God that represents those things, right? That... that the calf in, in Egypt and in, in Canaanite, like those were, this was an image of these gods that would provide these things for them, something tangible that because they wanted to have some control over their life. They wanted to have some influence, right? They wanted to be able to multiply and, and, and procreate. They, want, they enjoy sex just like every other generation, and they want, they want to have a prosperity and money, and so they turn to this idol. So when you see it, that way, through that lens, in their cultural context, you start to realize it's not quite as antiquated and removed as what we thought, right? Because if you, if you can just go with me just for a moment and translate that into our day, that whenever God is not doing what we think he should do, when God is not engaging in the way that we think he should engage, we fill in the blanks with, we turn to power, sex, and money, Right? And so what we find is, is Micah's writing here in this, this book, this book of prophecy where he's writing to the people of God and calling them out for their sin, is that it's actually in the context of, or th- this is actually the narrative of coming true what God told them back in the day of, of his promise. When he made them into a people, he gave them this covenant. He told them what would happen if they disobeyed. And what we're seeing is it's all coming to pass. You see, last week we talked about God's judgment on the world and that the whole world is sinful and broken and busted and have turned away from God and that we all deserve nothing less than destruction, death, and total separation from God and hell for eternity. Like, that's the judgment upon the world. Like, and so we talked about how, like, God's not, like, apathetic toward what's going on in the world. God's not... Um, impotent to do anything about it. Like he is a God who sees and knows and grieves with us at the evil that is and the suffering that is present in our world. And he's not impotent and unable to do anything about it. Instead, he's a God of grace and mercy. And instead of giving us what we deserve, which is that he would wipe us all out, which he did that once in Genesis 6, right? Like we talked about, God is a God of judgment, that he judged the whole world as broken, busted, and, and in rebellion to him. And he says, I'm grieved that I made it. This is not what I intended it to be. These people were supposed to be my image bearers, and now they've taken everything good and turned it into evil. And so he wiped everybody out in a global flood. He started back over with Noah and his family, but it didn't take long for it to go sideways again. And so God promised in that moment, he says, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. I'm not going to uh, 
the next time, and in this beautiful story, if you've got the Jesus story of the Bible, it paints this beautiful story of, of God giving the rainbow as a promise, right, of his covenant, that he would never destroy the world by flood again. Right? And, the, and the way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it is, is if you look at, like, God put his bow away. Like, God is a God, the Bible talks about God is a God of war, a God of judgment. And it says God, the, the warrior God has put his bow away. And if you, and if you notice the way that his bow is facing is, is next time his judgment's not going to be aimed down at earth, right, at his people, but instead it's going to be aimed right at the heart of heaven. And there's this beautiful picture of God has this plan in mind to no longer wipe out the world, and, but instead to redeem the world through the self-sacrifice of giving of himself, that God so loved the world he gave his only son, Jesus, to enter into this mess and to take our sin upon himself. And so that's what God is, is doing in the world, and it's through um, this people that God intends to accomplish this incredible work. All the way back from Genesis 12 when he called Abraham to create the people of Israel, if you've heard that word, God started that whole process. After the flood, he says, okay, this is how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to uh, rescue the world now. And it's going to be through you, Abraham, and I'm going to create a great nation through you, and through that nation, all the earth will be blessed. And he creates this people. And they end up in Egypt, and um, they, they grow and multiply and become this massive nation of people. God rescues them, as we just talked about, and he says, I'm going to bring you to this promised land. And that's what the story of the Old Testament he says. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to covenant with you. If you do what I say, you walk with me, you covenant with me, you, do what I, you follow my commands, that I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and life will go really, really, really well for you. Right? So you need to understand the context of God's commands are his goodness. Right? God's offer is life. When he offers us a way to live in the commandments, like his offer is one that is to lead us to life. He's not trying to steal from us. He's not trying to take away the fun in life. He's trying to offer us a way that will, will lead to prosperity. And really what he says is you should read in um, Leviticus 26 and then again in, in Joshua. Um, uh, yeah, I forgot, but I think it's Joshua 23, you'll see uh, there, there's this repeated, and really there's several times in the end of Deuteronomy um, and Numbers, uh, several times God is going to repeat his offer to these people saying, listen, I'm going to do something incredible for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you this great land. I'm going to bless you, right? But you have to do, like you have to, in order to maintain this blessing, to keep this blessing, you've got to obey. If you don't, if you disobey and you, you move into idolatry, as we'll talk about in a minute, it's going to go really badly for you. So basically, God says, listen, I'll be your God. You be my people. I'm covenanting with you. I commit that I will keep you and preserve you, and I will, like, no matter what you do, like, I'll, I'll come out of this with a remnant of you. Like, somebody will, I, I will preserve, even if it's just a small portion of you, I'll preserve them, and I will make them a great nation. I will turn them into uh, this force that will change the world. And what happens, like, so, so really his offer there, God's offer is life. These commands, he says, you do this, it'll go, relif- it'll go really, really well for you. If you walk in my ways, basically he tells him, I'm going to put you in this land. I'll bless your harvest. You'll never go hungry, right? I'll give you peace. Any of the, the nations that want to uh, come at you and, and overtake you, he says, like, they won't stand a chance. Even to the point that he says, I'll cause them to run away from you so much that just five of you can scare off 500. He says, I'll give you such power and uh, influence and protection that nobody's going to even try to attack you. Like, I'll make sure that you stay safe. Uh, even from the beast of the field, God has given them all of these offers saying, this is what I want for you. 
And then he says, I'll make you fertile. I'll make sure you multiply and you grow and and you will become a kingdom of advancing people. In short, really in summary, he says, I'll give you a blessed life. This is the offer that God uh, gives to his people in this moment. But what we see is that the people quickly turn away. But, but I want to I look at this graph with you. I want you to see, this is going to kind of be a theme for the book of Micah. And I want you to see the, the offer, what God is, is trying to lead us to, is out of his love, he commands us to love him fully because there's consequences if we don't. And so I want you to look at the right side of this graph. We'll look at the left side as we move later in the book of Micah in coming weeks. But, but this is, God says in Deuteronomy 6, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And, and really, uh, Jesus would boil it down later, and other places in the Bible it's summarized. The whole law and the, the, the whole scriptures is summarized, broken down to this one sentence. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, and you'll have life. So God's saying, love God with all that you have, and you will have life. And so what we see is that as we love God with all that we have, it'll lead to loyalty to God, like that our, our heart, our treasure will all be aimed at God. And when we do that, we'll have freedom. Right, that, that when God is the center of our life, the other things will have their right place and their right portion, and they won't have control over us. And that's what God is trying to invite us to. When he says, I need you to love me more than anything else, he's not saying, don't enjoy your family, don't enjoy your work, don't enjoy the blessings of this life. He's saying, you need to make sure that you're loving me more than those things, because if you don't, there's consequences. And that's really what we want to get to. And so um, you need to know, first of all, in verse 5 here, it follows the first four verses are really Micah calling out his people and saying, the Lord is coming in judgment. He's coming in judgment. And he's go- the mountains will melt under him, it says in verse 4, and valleys will split open like wax before fire, water poured down from a steep place. And in verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So that's the capital. All right, so Jacob is referring to the nation of Israel. And its capital is Samaria. And what is the high place of Judah? So that's, this is the northern and the southern kingdom of God's people. Uh, this is on the back end. God has brought them into uh, the, the promised land, and they, they have lived there, and they have, you know, the, pro, the cycle of kings is, is in place. And this is Micah calling these people back into a uh, covenant relationship, calling them out for their sin uh, before their God. And what he says is, all of this judgment is happening because of what you have done, because the people of God. This is not out there. This is in here. This is the church. This is the people of God. They have not kept God's covenant, and this is what is bringing God's judgment. And so when it says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? He's, Samaria is the capital. Same thing of uh, Judah and Jerusalem. So it would be much like uh, God looking and saying, um, at, at Washington, D.C., and saying, like that's, like, that's the picture. So that city goes, the rest of our country goes, right? And so as much of what's saying here is the capital of these two countries, the two uh, kingdoms of God's people. And he says, this is what's going to happen. Because of what, how they have, have gone astray, I'm going to make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. So this is Micah saying, because you've walked away from the Lord, your cities, the, the ones you're so proud of, the ones that you've banked your identity on, that God promised to give you, they're going to be destroyed. Down to the foundations, they're going to become a heap. And we know that, that Micah's prophecy came true, that the, these things actually happened, that the Assyrian army and others, Babylon would come in and overtake 
the nation of Israel and, and overthrow these cities and that they would be found in the exact condition that Micah had laid before them. But here's why. Here's what happened in these people. Here's why God is bringing about this judgment. Verse 7 starts talking about carved images will be beaten to pieces. This is the judgment. This is why God is coming, is stepping off of his throne. He says, all her wages will be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. That language there is strong, and it's strong for a reason. God had covenanted with these people. He had bound himself to these people to the point that, that Paul would later say, like, God's relationship to his people, the closest thing we got to an example of that is marriage. The way that we commit and covenant to one another, uh, one man, one woman for a lifetime, that's a picture of God's relationship to his people. God had bound himself to these people and promised, listen, you follow my way of life, and I'm going to bless you, keep you, protect you, and provide for you. But if you walk away, then there's going to be consequences. You've you got you to know that I'm leading you to life, and if you don't trust me and you walk, like, it's, it's not going to end well for you. And so this is God keeping his covenant, loving his church, but disciplining them. He never leaves them, forsakes them. He's not bailing on it. He doesn't push away from the table, but he is allowing their consequences to catch up with them. And he said, but, and here's the deal. He told them this. He told them this would happen in Leviticus 26 and in Joshua 23. As he, as he said, I'll do all this stuff, but remember just as I've done all that I've said up to this point, really even Joshua recaps and he says, listen, I want you to look back. God said he would drive out all these people. God said he would give us this land. He's done all of that. So you need to know he's got, as a God of his word, right? What he said he's going to accomplish. Joshua says, don't forget what else he said. Because he said, if you walk away, if you don't keep my commands, then you're gonna end up enslaved and taken off into captivity and into exile. And really, that's the that's the the big idea that, that God is, is trying to communicate through this is that um, idolatry, which is really going to be defined as just loving anything more than God, right? Like uh, Augustine said it this way, idolatry is, is like um, worshiping what is supposed to be used and using what is supposed to be worshiped, right? And it, Romans 1 will say that we've exchanged the truth about God and we've instead started worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And so it's, it's really putting anything other than God in the place of ultimate value in our life. And, and because these people have done this, what you, what you see is that they've, they've turned their loyalty over. Instead of trusting in God for, for their provision, for their, for their crops and for their uh, protection as a nation, they've looked to these other gods, these neighboring gods. And they've, 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 they've looked to these neighboring countries for protection. We see that they've actually made, if you, you read in Second Kings, you, you start reading the narrative portions, you see that some of Israel's kings have made um, commitments and contracts and uh, covenanted with other countries and looking to them for their provision. Instead of trusting God to provide for them and bail them out the way that he had so often, they start uh, looking to these other countries. And what happens is as they whore themselves out or prostitute themselves out, the Bible says. They turn away from God, God who'd done all these things for them. They turn away from him, that they've gotten themselves into a mess to the point that they are going to now be led off into captivity. So the people that God had rescued out of Egypt and promised to make a, a nation of free and prosperous and blessed people have now turned away from their God and they've gotten themselves into captivity. And so the, the, the big idea is that uh, idolatry leads to bondage. A 
encourage you to read those passages later today. They're long, but you'll see that God was really, really clear with them from the beginning. If you don't do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. This is all followed by, hey, if you do these things, this is what I got. This is, this is what your life's going to be like. But if you don't, very specifically, God says, I'm going to discipline you. I'll call you to repentance. If that still doesn't work, I'll discipline you again and again. And progressively, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And to the point that the, the, the country that I've given you, where I drove out the inhabitants of that place so that you could be blessed and prosper, you're going to now be driven out of that own country. And other people are going to come in and take over. And you will be exiles. You will once again be captive because idolatry and sin is going to lead you into bondage and to destruction. Verses 8 through 16 are really just a a really detailed description of all of this happening. It's Micah saying, for this I'm going to lament and wail and go stripped and naked and make lamentation like the jackals. I don't know what that means, but you can just use your imagination. And mourning like the ostriches, right? Um, Very vivid language here. For her wound, talking about the, the people of God, her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people. He's saying, this I." Idolatry has grown so rampant and has so taken over our people that it's incurable and it's reached the gate of Jerusalem. It's, it's now defining who these people are. They no longer look like God's people. They just look like other pagan nations. So he's going to go through and just name all of these cities and, and tell them, like, this is, what, this is what's about to happen. He's naming cities that are along the border as the Assyrian army is, is marching in. There's these cities that are along the border that in order to get to Jerusalem, they're going to have to be taken over, and Micah's just going to start saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be turned into dust, and he starts just naming all of these things that are going to happen. In uh, verses 11 all the way down to 16, it's just a, a detailed description of the destruction and the pain that is going to be caused because these people have turned away from their God. Here's the, here's the other side of that graph. So earlier we talked about it, God says, you love me, right? Like you give me all that you got. You, your loyalty is me in me, and that's going to lead to freedom. But if you turn away from me, if you turn to idols, then your loyalty will be bound up in them. You will become like there's no just toying with that, right? There's no just stepping inside, okay, well, I'm going to have God, but I'm also going to serve this thing, right? And he says, no, you, you can't serve two masters. You remember that, that passage from Jesus, right? You can't, you can't serve two masters. You're going to end up loving one and hating the other. And so he says, if you turn to something else for your security, identity, and hope, then you're going to become loyal to that. And before you know it, you're going to be in bondage to that. That's what God is trying to keep us from. His offer is, is to give us life, and yet our hearts are so inclined. As John Calvin said, our hearts are little idol factories. And again, to just drive in a little bit to what this looks like for us today, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really God. You might want to look at it this way. What, what, what is it that if it were to be taken away from you, if you were to lose it, would make life no longer worth living for you? Right? Would devastate you? Right? When you lose something that you enjoy, that you like, that you even like love, like it, it makes you sad, it, it costs you, like you, you can weep or whatever, but you can, you can go on, right? Like you understand life is not over, but what is it that if you don't have this, 
all of a sudden you're in deep depression. All of a sudden you're not sure life is worth living anymore. You're not sure you want to get out of bed. If you don't have that, then you're devastated. What is it? And whatever that is, you've likely stumbled upon your idol there. Right? Or maybe it's this way. What, what is it that if I had this, right, fill in the blank, if I had this, then my life would be complete. Right? Then I would feel like I've arrived. Then I would feel whole. Right? What is that for you? Let me write those things down if, if you're taking notes. What is it that if I lost it, I would be devastated in life and no longer feel worth living? Or on the other side of that, what is it if I achieved this or got this, I would feel like I finally arrived? Those are some questions that help you understand what idolatry looks like for us in our day, right? Idolatry is at the heart of all of our sin. Again, it's subversive. We don't think about it. It's easy to go to another country. Those of you who travel internationally, like you can, you can look around that country and very quickly point out their idols, right? Sometimes it's really obvious. It's like little temples where they're like slaughtering animals, right? And it's, and it's crazy and it's unnerving. Sometimes it's, you know, it's temples, whatever. And, but you start asking like, what, what, are, what, are, what are our idols here in America? And sometimes it's hard to describe. It's like Russ talked about a few weeks ago. It's like asking a fish to describe water. Like it, we don't know. It's just, what our, it's just what we're raised in, right? It's normal, for us, but if you put yourself in this position and think about you coming to visit America, the United States in 2019 for the first time, and you've never, like you've been in a third world country, you don't have TV, you don't have news, you don't know anything about us, and you come and you start observing our culture, what would rise to, the, what would you take note of? What would you call our idols in that moment? What would you see our lives being shaped around? Seriously, I want you to think about it. First thing, a thing in your pocket, right? Like, what would you think about a smartphone if you came from a third world country and you come, like, and you see the way that we treasure it, you see the way that we're clung to it, we're attached to it, we pull it out all the time, we check it, we can't leave the house without it. If it's broken, like, we don't even know how to function anymore, right? If we got to send it off for repair, I can't do that. I'll pay $300 just to get another one today. And like, I, like we, we don't know how to live our life without those things, Right? Or you think about how our, our homes are set up. What do we gather around? The TV, right? Wouldn't you be perplexed by that if you don't know anything about our culture? And you're like, man, that must be their God. Like they seem to have angled their whole life around that thing, right? Entertainment, right? What about our, what our, our, sport, like our sports stadiums? That would blow your mind as somebody who doesn't know anything about this country, right? You'd be like, man, that must be where they gather to worship their God, right? Like, that's a, that's a weird thing. I don't have a category for that. What about sex? What about the way that um, it's just plastered all over everything that we do? Right? So, yeah, we don't have these little carved, graven images of statues sitting in our homes. What, I think about, like, growing up, it's not a thing anymore now that the internet is, but even back in the day when I was growing up, like, it was really common what was in every man's garage or most men's garage? Some calendar of bikini-clad women, right? Like even amongst like respectable men, like that was just commonplace thing. Like that's where you put your calendar of women, right? Swimsuit edition. Like so you start to see how like we have turned ourselves, much like the people turning the calf, like we're looking for power and, 
and sex and money. Like those are still the same idols. They just flesh themselves out in different ways. Work, how we spend our time, how we, like look at your checkbook, look at your schedule. Those things will point you to what your idol is. And here's the big idea. Whatever, like, as it said, whatever you trust in, whatever your heart clings to, Right, that, that, um, Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that's really your God. Whatever that is, you're going to start being loyal to that and you'll become enslaved to that. What about our kids? Right? In this day, as you read some of these crazy stories in the Bible, you'll see that they actually sacrifice their kids in acts of idolatry. But if you're in that position of coming to our country for the first time, you'll start to wonder, are these little things running around, are they our gods? Right? Like We seem to have built our lives around them and so instead of and, and, and on the other hand, we've got abortions. Like, so there's this tension of, yeah, for some people, that's their God, and they've built their whole life and existence around their, their kids. For other people, their own comfort and whatever is leading them to take this egregious action. Like, and so you start to see how these things flesh out. And here's the big idea. Here's what, here's what God wants you to know when he warns you against idolatry. He's saying, if you let your trust, your heart, cling onto those things and confide in those things, it will lead you into bondage, Period author Rebecca Pippert says this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. And the person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people that he or she wants to please. We know this is true, right? We, we don't control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. We know that to be true. We know that it's not enough, like it's never enough. We know that just given a little bit, like we know that we become enslaved, we become caught up in. And so the invitation from God to trust wholly in him, to love him only, is really an offer of life. He's saying whenever you centered yourself on me, you'll be able to enjoy these things rightfully. You'll be able to enjoy work rightfully and your kids rightfully and sex rightfully and money rightfully because they're not going to control you, right? And Augustine said, as I said earlier, like it's, it's worshiping what is supposed to be used or using what is supposed to be worshiped, right? So God is not to be used. He's not to be used as our pinata that we just take out and whack whenever we want something. We ask God, hey, will you please provide that for me, right? Like instead, God is to be worshiped and what we have, the stuff we have is to be used to worship him. But we flip that around when we start worshiping the creator instead of the, or the creation instead of the creator. We start, right? We start worshiping the things that, that God is meant to be used to bring him glory, So you see what, what God is doing with his people here. He, he warned them not to go into idolatry. He warned them not to trust in these things. And yet they've done it. And so, what, but what they've done is they've just clung to their national identity. Well, we're the people of Israel. Like God's not, he's promised. Like he's not gonna do anything to us, right? Like we don't, it doesn't matter what we do. We have this promise from God, right? So we can just keep doing, have we, anybody else lived our life that way or heard people kind of living that way? Right, like, well, God's going to forgive us. God's a love, a God of love and grace, right? We can do whatever we want, right? You know that kind of mentality? We remove the judgment of God, and we just think, okay, well, you know, he's a God of love. and grace. Like, he'll tolerate us. He doesn't care what we do. But what we've seen here is because he's a God of love, he's a God of all judgment and grace. And so, like a good dad, he's going to call us out for our sin, and he's going to let the consequences come to bear in order to teach us a lesson. It's a lot like, we, you, you can relate to this as parents, and if not, you can relate to this when you were a kid and how your parents treated you. Just yesterday, one of, my, one of my kiddos came up to me and said, Daddy, my belly hurts. I said, okay, baby, um, let's recap what you've had to eat today. 
It's like, well, and it was snow day. We were playing, you know, we were sledding and just having fun. So and we were down at my grandma's and I, when my kids are at my, my mom's, they're, they're, they're grandma's, my mom's. When my kids are at my mom's, they eat like Will Ferrell did an elf. Like syrup on everything, right? Like sweets for every meal. And so it's just like, you know what? We're not going to fight that. We're just going to let them enjoy the day. And so she's like, well, I had some chocolate chip pancakes, went to tell on it. And then I had, um, then I had like some cookies and cake at a birthday party. And then I had some more candy. And I'm like, okay, baby. And what is that? What does mommy and daddy tell you about if you eat too much sweet? Cause my belly to hurt. I'm like, yeah, babe. Like, okay, like that's why when we tell you you don't need any more of that, like we're not just trying to steal your fun and not letting you have any more sweets. Like there are consequences to that. We love you. That's why we told you not to do that. And, and much in the same way, God is, his people have run off to, to serve these idols and their consequences are now coming back to haunt them. And God is saying, listen, I told you so. I told you so. Idolatry always leads to, to bondage. Always leads to bondage. The good news is, and listen, for many of you that like that just rings true, and you're like, yeah, I know, like, you, um, like I didn't need to come here for you to tell me that, right? We're trying to sell our house, and uh, we sold, we had a showing this week, and they uh, the feedback they gave us was like, um, yeah, we it's a nice house for going to make our list though because the yard's a little too small and it's on a really busy street, and we're like, yeah, that's why we're moving. Thanks, like. We're glad we got our house all ready to show so you could tell us why we're selling it. Thank you. Very obvious. So some of you are like, yeah, Jordan, I get it. I can't get over this thing in my life. I know that my life is a mess. The, the consequences for my sin are very, very clear. What's the solution? And, and you need to know that there's good news. Even in this book of prophecy where there's indictment and judgment from Micah, it gets good. Because if you flip over to chapter 7, this book of Micah, this is the, the theme of the book. Even what Micah's name means is who is a God like ours. Like that's the name of the, of, the, of the author. It means that, and that's really the theme of the book. And if you flip over to the last few verses in this book, in chapter 7, verse 18, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever. So yes, he's going to discipline. Yes, he's going to bring judgment, but he doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Not ours. That doesn't exist. Our hearts are fickle and we run to all kinds of things. But because he is covenant, because he is a God of steadfast love, he is going to intervene. And it says in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. That's to God's people. He's saying, it won't be this way forever. Yes, you're going to be carried off into exile. Yes, you're going to be conquered by these countries, but it won't be that way forever. God is going to send a conqueror. It says that in, in, in chapter 2, a conqueror that's going to break forth the gates. And so this bondage that is uh, climbed on top of all of us because of our sin and the things that we're enslaved to, Jesus has come to set us free the whole point of the, the movement of scriptures is to, is to bring these people to a place where they're craving and longing for God to rescue them. And God says, I'm going to. And, and each one of the, the, the heroes of the scripture and the, the rhythm that, that comes there as David conquers and as uh, the judges come and they, they bring the people back in. And all of those things are pointing to one day there will be a great and final conqueror, one that will put all of this to rest. And that it's prophesied also in Micah whenever he says there will be a Savior born in Bethlehem and he will become the one 
who rules all nations. He will become the one who breaks the chains of the captives, who sets them free, who lifts the, the, the yoke of the oppressed and brings them life. And, and it says he'll remove our sins. He'll, he'll cast them out as far as east is from the west. He'll, he'll, he'll make us forgiven again. But the way that he does that, he doesn't just go, ah, oh, you know what? I was, crankier when I, I was cranky when I said those things. You know what? Just, just forget about it. We're cool. Just come here and give me a hug. No, like the wrath of God, the judgment of God is real. And it's not, to, it's not to take the place of the love. Like, it is a part of the love of God. Like, the love of God in its fullness has to have judgment and justice. And because it does, the wrath of God is built up against sinners that have rebelled against him and walked away and have made a mess of their life. Like, the, way, the reason the world is the way that it is, it's a direct result of our idolatry, turning to things instead of the creator, right? Of trusting in this, that, money, power, sex, fill in the blank. Instead of trusting in God to provide for us, to bless us, to give us life, we're, we're looking to these idols, these little idols that are meant to be blessings. Money, power, those aren't bad things. That's what idolatry, like we turn good things into God things, right? Keep God where he is and let those other things serve and worship him, but don't, don't get it inverted, and all that is going on in our world is a direct result of our idolatry. And yet, and yet, the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't look and say, you know what, you guys made a mess, see it. Like, I can't even, no, no, he enters into our mess. He steps down off of his throne and he steps into the brokenness that we've made. And that's the story of Jesus. That's the story of Christmas that turns into the story of Easter Right, This man who lived the life that we couldn't live. Right, He, he was tempted. His heart was, was tempted and, and drawn toward the things that we are, but he never gave in, and he lived the life that we couldn't live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He endured the wrath of God that was poured out completely and fully upon him on the cross. And because of that, we are set free. There's no wrath for the people of God anymore because he delights in his steadfast love. That's what's going on in John 3, 16. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the story of the gospel is that, yes, we're all entangled in sin and we all have no hope of pulling ourselves up by our bootstrap. And yet, the good news is that Jesus came. Jesus came. And he is the conquering king who rescues us from our idolatry by giving us the one true God. Like the only way to get over your idolatry is not to do better, try harder, Right, Augustine also talked like he talks about it's a it's a reordering of loves. Like <clears throat> when we start struggling with sin, it's because we've got our loves out of order. Like we're loving something more than we love God. And the way to overcome sin is not just to white knuckle it and do better, right? But it's to replace that that draw, that affection, that that thrill, that pleasure, whatever it is, replace it with something greater. And Jesus stands and says, "You come to me. You come to me. I'm the bread of life. I am the fountain of living water. He who drinks of me will never thirst again." And what he's saying is, I'm the one that will make your soul complete. I'm the one that can give you life and keep you in the midst of life. It's not about trying harder and doing better. It's about admitting that we are in need of a Savior and claiming the name of Jesus to be that Savior in our life. So if you're here today and, and you're like, man, I'm struggling. I'm addicted to fill in the blank. Jesus knows. And he's not waiting for you to clean your life up. He came and died on the cross so that he could clean you up, so that his blood could wash you clean 
Isaiah says, though your, skin, though, though your sins are as scarlet, come and I'll, let's, let's reason together. I'll make you white as snow. That happens through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We're going to pray and we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And wherever that is for you, if you'd like to be pray, prayed for, to be set free, then I'll be up here at the front. Um, the altar will be open. And we're going to take this beautiful meal, which just screams out the love and justice of our good God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. What we deserved was judgment, destruction in its fullness. And what, yet what you gave, Lord, is grace on top of grace displayed in Jesus. So as we take this meal, may you bring that story to life and may you pierce our hearts and cause us to respond in faith and repentance and in hope. Do your work, Lord. We look to you at this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.